the, you know, yeah, I, chess is obviously a, a very low-level analogy, but just imagine a thousand things like chess that represent real, you know, theory building yeah. or cognition, you know, the, yeah. in a box. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And, and so w- when I use the word movement or embodiment, and I, I'm careful to define it in the book because it doesn't have to be physical. It, you know, I, I, example I gave, you can imagine an intelligent agent that lives in the internet. And right. a movement is following links, right? It's not a physical thing, but it, there's still this conceptual mathematical idea of what it means to move. Yeah. And, so, and so you're changing the location of, of some representation. And that could be virtual. It could be, you know, it doesn't have to have a physical embodiment. But, but in the end, it, you, can't, you can't learn about the world just by looking at a set of pictures. <laughs> right. it, it, that's not, not going to happen. You can learn to classify pictures. But so, so some AI systems will have to be physically embodied, like a, like, like a robot, if I guess, if you want. Many will not be. Many will be virtual. But they all have this internal process, which we could, I could point to the thing that says, here's where the reference frame is. Here's where your current location is. Here's how it's moving to a new location based on some movement vector. You know, like a verb, a word, can, you can think of that as like an action. And so you can have a, an action that's not physical, but it's still an action, and it moves to a new location in this internal representation. Right, right. Okay, well, let's talk about risk, because I mean, this is the place where I think you and I have very different intuitions. You, you are, as far as I can tell from your book, you seem very sanguine about AI risk. And really, I, you seem to think that the only real risk, the serious risk of things going very badly for us, is that bad people will do bad things with much more powerful tools. So the heuristic here would be, you know, don't give your super intelligent AI to the next Hitler, because that would be bad. But other than that, the generic problem of self-replication, which you talk about briefly, and, and we, you point out we face that on other fronts, like with, you know, with the pandemic we're, we, we've been dealing with. I mean, so natural viruses and bacteria or computer viruses, I mean, there's, there's anything that can self-replicate can be dangerous. But that aside, you seem quite confident that AI will not get away from us. There won't be an intelligence explosion. And um, we don't have to worry too much about the so-called alignment problem. And at one point, you even question whether it makes sense to expect that we'll produce something that can be appropriately called superhuman intelligence. So perhaps you can explain the basis for your optimism here. So I think what most people, and perhaps yourself, uh, have fears about is, is they, they, they use humans as an example of how things can go wrong. And so we think about the alignment problem or you think about, you know, motivations of an AI system. Well, okay, uh, does the AI system have motivations or not? Does it have a desire to do anything? Now, as a human, an animal, we all have desires, right? But if you, if you take apart what parts of the human brain are, are doing, different parts, there's some parts that are just building this model of the world. And this is the core of our intelligence. This is what it means to be intelligent, that part itself is, is, is benign. It has no motivations on its own. It doesn't desire to do anything. I use an example of a map. You know, a map is a model of the world. And you can, a map can be very powerful uh, tool for some to do good or to do bad. But on its own, the map doesn't do anything. 
So if you think about the neocortex on its own, it, it sits on top of the rest of your brain. And the rest of your brain is really what makes us motivated. It gets us, you know, we have our, 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 our good sides and our bad sides, you know, our desire to maintain our life and have sex and aggression and all this stuff. The neocortex is just sitting there. It's like a map. It says, you know, I understand the world and you can use me as you want. So when we, th when we build intelligent machines, we have the option, and, and I think almost the imperative, not to build the old parts of the brain too. You know, why do that? We just, just have this thing which is inherently smart, but on its own doesn't really want to do anything. And, and so there's some of, the, some of the risks that come about from the people's fears about the alignment problem specifically is that the, the, the intelligent agent will decide on its own or decide for some reason to do things that are in its best interest and not in our best interest, or maybe it'll listen to us, but then not listen to us or something like this. I just don't see how that can physically happen. And, and, and for people, most people don't understand this separation. They just assume that this intelligence is wrapped up in these, all, these, all the things that make us human. The intelligence explosion problem is a separate issue. I'm not sure which one of those you're more worried about. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's deal with um, the alignment issue first. I mean, I, I do think that's more critical, but let me see if I can capture what troubles me about this uh, picture you've painted here. I, it seems that you're, to my mind, you're, you're being strangely anthropomorphic on one side, but not anthropomorphic enough on the other. I mean, so like, you know, you, you think that to understand intelligence and, and actually true 